0: Having a Gas is the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries, and in particular finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for dancing to, for cooking to, for f-ing to, and more. Today I'm having a gas with Erminia Blackton, an integrated strategy director at Engine. Erminia is also an author and a campaigner on how brands fail to recognize the potential of women, the world's largest emerging market. Uh, So, hello, Omini. Hello. Thanks for joining me. How is the uh, working from home situation treating you?
1: Uh, I quite like it. Um, It gives me the opportunity to be flexible. Um, It gives me the opportunity to mix kind of work with uh, home um, more than ever. Mm -hmm. Um, I do miss meeting people in the office. Um, I've done it twice in... um, in seven months and it was a great experience but um, it's on hold again for now at least. Do
0: you want to make any predictions on the record for when you might be back in?
1: Full-time I would say never Um, but three days a week um, on a generally kind of consistent basis I would say probably next summer.
0: Yeah I think uh, that's what we're all feeling at the moment. How was it for you uh, when all this came down in March, was there, did you see it coming? Were you prepared for it? Was it a shock?
1: I can't think that far back. Um, it was a shock. Um, I was prepared for it. Uh, our company was uh, was prepared for it. So we all had a practice. we had a practice run of working from home. We practiced on the Monday and on Tuesday, we were told not to come in. And I think the lockdown was on Wednesday. Um, yeah. So um, got, just by the skin of our teeth we managed to um get everything organized and it was i think we've all been quite surprised at how um how we've adapted really and you know i'm more fortunate than most that i don't have to um homeschool children um i don't live in a small space um i have access to computer equipment um a place of my own to work um i don't have to share equipment or share space so um I'm, I'm more fortunate than most, so I think I probably found it easier than a lot of people.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And so um, before we go into the other stuff, it's worth noting that the time of speaking, it's the 3rd of November and we're about to head into lockdown number two. Uh, what, what are your feelings about that? Uh, do you feel it's different this time?
1: I think it's different because we all know what to expect. Um, we are hoping it's going to be shorter, though I suspect, um, although it will probably end in um, on the 2nd of December. I don't think that ending will be a clean cut end. I think there will be pretty firm restrictions taking us right the way to Christmas and beyond. Um, but I think uh, I think that 2nd of December feels like a milestone that can't be taken away from us because we've all got it in our sights. We've all diarised it. We know it's, it's a day of change. Um, what that change is remains to be seen. But um, as humans, I think we quite like to plan ahead and we quite like to to have milestones in our future. I think that's the difference between this lockdown and the last one where we genuinely um, had no idea uh, what to expect and how long it was going to last for. Yeah. And that made us more resourceful, I think. And this time, I think um, we're just getting on with it and kind of finding our own solutions and, and not necessarily being um, as... Uh, collaborative and as helpful and as um unified as perhaps we once were
0: yeah there were a lot uh, as you pointed out there were a lot of things we didn't know the first time around um and so this one does have the uh uh, addition of certainty uh, a kind of certainty one of the creative directors I suppose who recently said the only thing I'm worried about is compliance I think more people are going to try and work around it this time um Yeah. yeah what do you think about that
1: I think it's true I think people are already working around it and I think that um One of the issues that we've got is that the rules are, um, well, these rules are are fairly clear, but they're still inconsistent um, because of the fact that children are still able to go to school, which is a good thing. It's a right thing to do. Um, I've got a daughter at university. She'll be coming back at some point. But I think um, if the whole point of this is to get the R rate down, then I think it will take a lot longer than it did the first time because we had complete lockdown. Now we have... um, people who are very prone to uh, mixing and mingling. Um, so it's kind of the younger generations and um, less prone to exhibiting s- uh, symptoms. So much less likely to lock down um, personally at lockdown if um, they do um, have any symptoms because they don't necessarily know they've got them. They're already living in large shared groups, whether that is, um, you know, at university or in shared houses um, or in halls, um, and they're, they're mixing in large groups and, and bringing that, you know, the, the virus potentially back into homes. So I think it will take um, a lot longer to get the R rate down. Um, I think we should have done it a lot earlier, and I think that there are, um, without getting too political, I think there are lots of other things that we could have done um, to um, ease the transition from lockdown one to and avoid lockdown two. So I think Scotland is quite a good example. Um, in terms of what they've done, sort of banning alcohol in um, restaurants and um, venues, closing at six o'clock. Um, I think all of those things contribute to a change in how we see socialising and entertainment, which I don't think has really happened um, here in, in London. Definitely, um, I think we still see it as the same prize. We're still after the same prize. We haven't we haven't reevaluated and we haven't created a new normal. Or what socialising looks like. We're just still desperate to get the old one back, and claw it back um, yeah. as quickly as we can. Well, I talking- mean, I'm a classic example. I'm going out tonight and tomorrow night. A friend of mine said, what's the occasion? Why are you going out on a Tuesday night? I said, it's lockdown minus two. Yes. I'm going out tomorrow night because it's lockdown minus one. So, you know, I'm not breaking any rules, I hasten to no, add. of course, but, um, yeah. But it is that, that mentality that I need to get, you know, my my night out um, in the bag before my month of isolation.
0: <laughs> yeah we had um, uh, we all had a, an email from uh, our the, the, the gym that I belong to I won't say the brand uh, just in case and they sent an email out to all their members saying uh, last week in the gym get as many sessions in as you can. Uh, and I went in last night and there was about 30 strong class going on. So that was unusual. But, um, and yes, in terms of uh, going out and socialising and not taking things seriously, you're talking to someone from Manchester. And so we're the, uh, we've been wrapped on the knuckles a few times in the last couple of weeks. So Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. And if you've tried to go out tonight or tomorrow night, um, then I think you are a very lucky person if you've managed to get a reservation any time before half past three in the afternoon. Yes. Because, uh, you know, it's not just me. The, the whole of the UK is There's doing it. There's all of things.
0: London doing it as well, yeah.
1: Well, there aren't, any, there aren't any restaurants anywhere that you can book into. If you wanted to, to book a restaurant today for tomorrow, you're probably looking at, for an evening, you're probably looking at quarter past three if you're lucky.
0: Wow. So hopefully they'll uh, be able to clear a lot of, uh, just get a lot of uh, money in the till before they have to lock down. But Let's um, hope. The interesting thing is through all of that, you could sense that... Um, uh, that you are someone who thinks strategically for a um, you know for a day job, let's say. And um, I've only spoken to one strategy person so far, which was uh, Richard Huntington of Sarchis. And the interesting question for everyone who comes on this uh, podcast is: uh, How do you describe your role to someone who says, "What do you do?"
1: What do I do? Um, I bring clarity to um, a situation. I look at um, the evidence. I analyse the evidence. I bring new evidence to the table. I analyse that evidence. And then I formulate a plan to help us solve the problem. Share that plan. I think it's always important to share your plans. Share the thinking stage of the plan because it doesn't matter how much desk research you do, you still can't know everything. Yes. Um, and... Information is only half the story. You're only really working with um, if you're only really working with data. You're only really working with half of your brain because you can interpret data in a number of ways. As a, a very pertinent thing um, to say in the prescient thing to say in the current climate, because we all have the same data, um, and yet the three uh, nations are operating completely differently. So um, you know, information data is only part of the story. You then need to interpret that data, and it requires um, more brains to do that, I think. So it's about pulling in the information. It's about finding a clear path and creating a plan to help solve whatever problem is on the table.
0: Yeah, so uh, one of the things I heard from someone at McCann was they're saying that uh, the planner is the person who makes sure that your uh, the client's money is being spent properly. Uh, is that accurate or is that too general?
1: That should be everyone's role to a certain no, extent um, within an agency. And I think it's worth, um, I think it's worth articulating the slight difference between planning and strategy, which sounds semantic, but um, strategy is a very, very broad church and there are lots of different types of strategy. I mean, we're all strategists because we all have to strategize and, and look at information and make decisions every day. Mm-hmm. You know, when you decide where to go on holiday, you're being a strategist, Um when you decide you know, what to have for Sunday lunch you're, you're, or what restaurant to go to, you're being a strategist. So we all have that skill and it's a discipline that we all um, exercise and use every day. But um, there are different types of strategy and I think um, strategy is about looking at the broader picture. And planning, I see as being more of the implementation side. Um, and you know, I've always kind of said that in a lot of ways, strategy is a ten a penny. Anyone come up with a strategy, but it's the implementation of that strategy is where the truth will out and you will find out (laughs) how good that strategy really was. And you will see all the things that you failed to see or just weren't uh, visible when you were developing the hypotheses.
0: So one thing that interested me when we we had a brief uh, talk before this to um, figure out what we were going to chat about. And one of the things that really caught my attention was that you said two things, You said Music is less effective than it used to be in advertising. And then, well, actually, all of advertising is less effective than it used to be. Is, yeah. that, is that accurate? And why is that?
1: So um, it is accurate because it comes from some work that um, Les Beno and Peter Field did looking at um, IPA effectiveness studies. The
0: 60 40 rule.
1: Um, that, that- that's part of it, but it's actual effectiveness. So um, they've analysed how many papers have won um, effectiveness awards versus um, those entered. And the number has kind of decreased quite dramatically as a percentage of papers entered. And um, I think the drop from 2008 to 2018, which I think the last time that piece of analysis was looked at, was about a drop of two thirds. So it's a pretty significant drop in terms of effectiveness. So um, it's a real thing that has happened. And there have been lots of of strategies um, and uh, hypotheses that have come to the fore about why we think that is. And most recently, um, Orlando Wood wrote uh, Lemon, which kind of looks at the kind of left brain, right brain, thinking and uh, what seems to be coming across is that um you know back in the heyday what i call the heyday of advertising back in the sort of 80s and, and early 90s um advertising was epic it was um significant it was something you looked forward to um, if a great ad would come on tv you'd actually watch it because it was a a moment in time it was a Um, It was like listening to a great song. It was a mini film. It was um, a whole experience like, you know, eating a Mars bar. It was a whole experience. And actually now it's just stuff that that comes on your telly. And it's very rational now advertising. And this has kind of been borne out by a lot of the analysis and research that Orlando Wood's done. It's very rational. So it appeals very much to the left brain. Um, And it doesn't bring the right brain into the mix very much, um, if, if at all, in some instances. And you need both sides of the brain to make an, a kind of a, a connection, really. It isn't one or the other. If you're just using the right brain, it's just fluffy and, you know, lovely. It's lovely, but I'm, I'm not even sure what I'm supposed to be buying. So yes. it's not going to improve sales, <laughs> but it's a really enjoyable experience. But then if you just use um, the left brain, you've got all the facts, but you feel nothing. Yes. So, and, and I think that music is a really important part of that feeling equation, Um Music is quite unique in, in that it's, um, it's connection with memory, it's connection with pleasure, it's ability to cut right through and um, connect with people emotionally um, to create um, memories and, and to kind of create um, access to memories quite simply by listening to a, a tune again or a song again. And it brings, you know, that whole sort of wedding first dance thing. It's It's not just a song you like. It, it means so much. And because the music connects with the limbic system, which is kind of unconscious, it's about learning, it's about memory, it's about behavior, it's about how you feel. Um, and, you know, when you hear a piece of music that connects with you, um, you know, you sometimes hear something and you just, this is something about it that connects with you. That isn't a coincidence, it's because you've got neural nodes that have developed that um, are linking that particular sound or that series of chords or that type of instrument with something pleasurable from the past and it's kind of building and rebuilding. And within the brain, music um, has the ability to to draw forward a lot of information quite quickly. So it is a surprise that um, it isn't used more um, in advertising because it's a a very um, cost-effective anchor for so much information. I mean, you can't listen to uh, Lakme's um, flower duet now without thinking of British Airways. If you were sat in the Albert Hall and the Royal Philharmonic were playing it beautifully, you would just think about British Airways, which is a little bit sad, but, um, but good for British Airways, I guess.
0: Yeah, of course. And so do you think, you said you're surprised it's not used more yeah. uh, as a key emotional, um, what would you call it, anchor? Hook. Hook. And... Um, do you think this is partially because of what you were discussing before about the, the, the appeal to the left brain? And it's very difficult to sell into someone why music will be effective because it's hard to measure the impact of it.
1: I think you can measure the impact of it because um, we have a lot of very um, robust um, pre-testing systems now that allow you to do just that. So you can measure the impact of it. You can um create a piece of communication and test it without music or test it with three different soundtracks and you know in advertising that does happen you know quite a lot I think that to use music um to its best um to maximum impact you you need to kind of make it really part of the story and it's not enough just to have it in the background or you know just to have it as a um you know, a, a sonic branding device. Um, so that does a little bit, but it's not It's not the same as when the, the song was the story. So um, things like, um, I'd like, you know, going back to the beginning, I'd like to teach the world to sing McCann Erickson. You know, the song was the story. Um, Brutus Jeans, one of my absolute favourites. You know, I put my blue jeans on, I put my Brutus Jeans on. Um, switch to Michelin, again, another favourite of mine. Um, driven... Uh, for, driven for you by um, Ford, which was obviously um, uh, Brian May um, and, and lots and lots of others. So um, when the, the music is the story, um, then it becomes really, really powerful. But if there is music playing, a soundtrack playing, um, and particularly if there are lyrics to that soundtrack, there's a limit to what you can say or do over the top. And that doesn't give me much space to tell you, uh, what the APR is um, what other services you get with this product and um, where you can buy it uh, uh, what other benefits you're entitled to uh, what colors it comes in what shops it's available in and what price it, you know all of that other information that um, I'm so desperate <laughs> to get into my um into my ad
0: yeah I, I um I, we've obviously we we make music so you're preaching to the firmly converted we we always thought that um music had the ability to communicate emotion in not in a way that other things couldn't but in a way that emphasized other things which is why it makes sense as a soundtrack in a film you don't go why is there an orchestra playing it makes complete sense because it's communicating a raw feeling the same way we talk with our hands because they fill in the gaps in the things that i'm not saying music does the same underneath whatever your um you know your messaging uh, underneath whatever your message is but um because you mentioned the binet and field research And I was talking about this on one of my last ones with Steve Harrison. I uh, wanted to get your take on, do you think this is part of the brand building versus sales activation debate? As in, you know, music is being used in a much more, much more in keeping with sales activation. As in, as long as you don't interrupt with your key message and just have a track underneath it kind of filling space. Yeah,
1: That's exactly it. So, you know, McDonald's, I'm loving it. Um, You know, brilliant, uh, Sonic, Uh, capsule um, but the content isn't really about you know the song itself doesn't really deliver the content the content is separate to the song and interesting to your point about you know music filling in the gaps I think it does more than that I think it sets the tone and um, emotion is so important to the communication of anything we don't really take much stuff in rationally to be honest Um, the whole system one system two thing um, if we spent time being rational, we wouldn't get out of bed. There would just there's so much to think about, um, yes. I mean, nothing would ever be achieved. So everything has to be really done emotionally, and then you do a little bit of cross checking um, in the sort of system two part to give yourself an argument. And someone asks you, yes. um, you know, when you next um, go out to the pub or to a restaurant, why you made that decision. But I think music does more than that. I think music sets the tone and the context. And there's a fantastic. Um, trailer which I'm sure is available on YouTube for the film The Shining and um, the trailer was um, re-edited with a funny yeah, you're laughing because you've probably seen it it was re-edited with a very sort of funny um, Steve martin type um, comedy um, animal house type soundtrack and the same trailer just presented such a different story the words were the same the words are identical. Uh, the trailer was identical. They just changed the soundtrack, and it changed everything. Yes. So that is a, a, a you know, if you want an example, that is an example of how music sets the tone.
0: That is a great example, and that's why it's so memorable. Um, and so, briefly, uh, pirouetting back to the world of effectiveness and and um, and brand building versus sales activation. I was wondering if you could maybe give your take on why it feels like we're less inclined to appeal to emotion these days and more inclined to stick to rational messaging. And how have you seen that transformation take place?
1: I think the transformation has been quite slow um, to my mind. Um, I've only seen it because I've analyzed data and seen it. I haven't felt it in the journey Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's probably to do with a lot of things. Um, It's probably driven by business efficiency. It's probably driven by globalisation, um, brand globalisation, which was less of a thing in the 80s. Um, uh, Brand autonomy within local markets was stronger uh, back then. You know, car brands did their own, you know, BMW did its own advertising in the UK back in the 80s and the 90s and come the sort of 2000s. Like most car brands, everything is mandated by the host country. So the advertising gets given to you by the Germans and you kind of, you know, you adapt it. So the whole globalization thing, globalizations come about because of um, efficiency. Mm -hmm. So focusing more on efficiency, um, more um, bean counters, um, running businesses and running corporations and um, running marketing. And, you know, there's the great sort of... um, Oscar Wilde quote, knowing the price of everything and the value of nothing and going back to data, that uh, yes, the numbers do say that, but you need to think about what the interpretation of that means. And also, I think within marketing directors, I think um, I might be wrong, but I think they have a shelf life of something like two years. So as a marketing director, um, if I've got a shelf life of two years before I move on, I want to see success in my two years so I can get a better job. A better company, get paid more um, and do more. And so um, it doesn't, it's not worthwhile for me to think about that long term investment piece. I'm going to get, you know, Brian Major write me a song and this is going to be, you know, the song for our brand and um, we're going to use it and all our collateral. Okay, it's going to take a couple of years, two, three, four, five years before it really takes off. But it, within 10 years, it's going to be what people remember. And as soon as you hear the fir- the opening bars of this tune, uh, you will think of my brand, the LACME British Airways, which is what, 35, 40 years possibly that's been going. Um, I haven't got time for that because I'm going to be moving on in 18 months I'm going to right. start looking for a new job in 18 months. I'm going to be out within two years. So I think it's partly that as well. So I think everything has become very short-term. We're focused on short-term results and we're unwilling to invest in the future because... Of longevity of personnel. And um, I think we've made the future, by focusing too much on the present, we've made the future seem so frightening and so um, so much of an unknown. Mm. It used to be exciting, the future used to be exciting, and now it's scary.
0: What, why do you think that is? Two questions, uh, they're two big questions. So um, if you need a refresher, let me know. Two questions. One, what Did marketing directors used to have a much longer tenure? And two, why is the future now scary?
1: I'm led to believe that marketing directors did have a longer tenure. Um, so um, I think it's quite a recent thing that the length of time spent in in the job has um, decreased. Um, I could be wrong, but so that's my understanding. Um, and I'm talking over 20, 30 years. I'm not talking the last five years. Yeah. Yeah. um and so i think that that is the case um and the people that they're with move around as well so people when they move jobs take the key people that you know they rely on with them so that's the kind of first part and the second part the future is scary because um it's an unknown and where i was able to plan 10 years ahead, as a a long 10-year marketing director, I was able to plan. I was able to say, okay, over the next 10 years, what I want to do with this business is take it from here to here. Um, And over that 10 years, I appreciate that um, I am going to have to take things slowly. Um, There are going to be, I'm going to write a plan, but there are going to be some bumps along the way. Um, Some things are going to go well for me. Some things are going to go not so well for me. But you know it's like life, isn't it? You you kind of bounce back, you learn, and you move on. But um, it's now scary because I haven't got that space, that capacity. Um, haven't got the people coming with me because everyone wants to see results today. Where are your results today? You know you, you forecast on a quarterly basis. Where are your results today? Why are your results? Why are your your results not matching your forecast? Do we need to reforecast? Um, it, it's all about um, pinning down the future. So business is now about pinning down the future as opposed to looking at the future as an opportunity that um, is out there to be taken, exploited, managed. Um, It's not that anymore. It's about pinning it down, but it's like, you know, gluing jelly to the wall. It can't be done, but we're still trying to do it. We're still trying to do it. And I think that's part of the problem.
0: Do you see uh, any brands, um, Without risking any conflict of interest, do you see any brands who you're quite impressed by who are successfully navigating and, and, and still building a decent brand despite the trend towards a short term short term results? Um,
1: let's see. Um, I think um, I think the brands that do it best are the brands that have stuck to their guns. So a brand like KitKat, for example, has been around probably since the 1930s, and their positioning was always really about taking a break, you know, have a break, have a KitKat. And uh, very recently, they've modified that ever so slightly. I mean, it's a slight modification, and I can't remember the exact wording because the modification is actually quite subtle, but it's a big deal for them. And um, throughout the years, throughout um, they've executed that completely different, so completely differently. Um, taking a break in the nineteen thirties was different to taking a break in the nineteen fifties to taking a break in the nineteen seventies. Um, but they've always kind of stuck with that, um, and I think that is uh, one of the reasons why they're still one of the you know, biggest selling countline brands and Coca Cola as well, um, which was always about companionship and about, um, you know, being with people and enjoying that that moment with people. And if you look at, um, you know, advertising from, you know, I'd like to teach the world to sing, McCann Erickson, and, the, you know, all the people of the world, ahead of its time, that ad was so ahead of its time, all those different people from all around the world, looking different, behaving differently, um, from different cultures, um, looking differently, all brought together because of Coke. And you look at... Um, coke advertising now and it it does the same thing in a very contemporary way so um i think that they're the kinds of brands and that's one of the reasons why they're so successful those brands are so successful because they have maintained consistency they haven't always got it right um but if you've got enough equity in the bank Mm -hmm. you can pick yourself out of that situation quite quickly and if you look at brands now and brand advertising now, again, tied back to the marketing director changing every couple of years. Um, there is a real lack of consistency over time. So the strap lines that you remember uh, are probably ones that have been around for 10, 20, 30 years. Um, even five years isn't enough for it to, to kind of to connect because our heads are so full of stuff. We see 4,000 um, branded messages a day um, we can't keep all that rubbish in our heads um, it's not that important to consumers um, it's important to us but it, you know, I think sometimes we forget how unimportant it is to consumers so it's about consistency, longevity um, sticking to your guns um, being confident um, in adversity keep going you know don't lose your nerve keep going if it's the right thing to do keep going and i think that ties in with the short termism and it ties in with the turnover of personnel which makes it so hard to keep going because it's someone else's someone else's baby yeah you won't get any credit for that so you need to bring your own story in get
0: the results, move on. So it's almost as if, yeah, uh, it's temp- it would be tempting if you're in a senior marketing position to, te- to be building your own brand round with you where you go as opposed to building the the brand you're currently working on long term. But uh, nevertheless, um, one uh, thing I, uh, I'd, also, I'd also like to talk about, uh, I just like to get people's view on A, how you got in to the industry and how you got to the position where you are now and then maybe explore a little bit about what it's like for new starters and is it any different? And, you know, is advice, uh, any, any advice that you could give uh, for new starters, you know, is, is, it, is it still uh, as relevant or are there new challenges?
1: So how did I get into the industry? Um, I studied business. Um, I thought it was really boring. Um, there was a module called marketing, which um, I didn't even know what that was. Um, I was absolutely fascinated by the science and the rigor that went into marketing products. Um, age 18, I genuinely thought that people made products, they put them on supermarket shelves and if they sold, they made more and if they didn't, they discounted it, Yes, yeah. you know, finished. Um, not the case, um, as I discovered. So I was absolutely fascinated by this and um, decided to get involved. And, um, I've had quite an eclectic career having worked in media, um, research agencies, both quant, quant, um, advertising, direct marketing. So I've done quite a lot of things, which I think makes me, um, quite, um, good at being able to see the bigger picture because it's not, I haven't just been brought up through one discipline. Um, in terms of how I've got to where I am, it's hard work. Really, you have just got to enjoy what you're doing so much that um, you're willing to put the effort into doing it. Um, I mean, you must know yourself from your career. Um, if you're not enjoying doing something, um, it will—you will be found out. Mm-hmm. Just—it's inevitable. So uh, the fact that you enjoy doing something means you're willing to put the effort into it. It becomes something that you're passionate about and something that um, you feel um, rewarded by doing a good job in that space. And in terms of young people today, um, I think if I were to apply for my, if I were to apply for uh, a graduate placement uh, today at one of London's top agencies, even my own, I probably wouldn't get it. um, I think think, uh, what's required of young people today is phenomenal. Um, The amount of effort, uh, preparation, um, resolve that you need to get into the industry. I mean, we just walked in. We walked into the industry back in the, in the 80s, but it's so, so hard. And I was talking to a creative director, a friend of mine, who um, uh, said that she um, she got into the industry where she was doing a course and then Dave Trott uh, came and sort of presented a module and, um, At the end of the session, he said, oh, I'll give you half an hour to work something up as part of the workshop he was doing. He liked what she'd done. um, And he said, oh, well, you know, here's someone's name. Go and see them. She went to see them. Um, She was only 18 herself at the time. Uh, The secretary of receptionists said, I'm sorry, he's in a meeting. Um, Will you wait? She didn't realise what a meeting was because she, you know, it was, what's a meeting when you're 18? You've only been at school. Um, so she thought, well, he's in a meeting. I don't want to wait. I don't know how long this meeting's going to be. So she went home. And so they then phoned her at home and said, what are you doing at home? Why aren't you here? Well, he was in a meeting. And just, I mean, imagine that now.
0: As an 18-year-old <laughs> getting a call back from the CD, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, imagine that. But, you know, it was hilarious. And uh, he said, can you come back? And she said, well, not today. I'm in Uxbridge. I can go back tomorrow. And it was like, okay, we'll come back tomorrow. And you know the rest is history. She's a very successful, very successful creative.
0: Brilliant.
1: Um, but, you know, you, it's just that it was another world, another world.
0: Are you allowed to reveal who she is?
1: No, <laughs> 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 it's her story, and uh, I don't, uh, I don't feel at uh, at liberty to okay. share it with you and to give you her name.
0: No, of course. Well, you know, it's good. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, we'll, that'll, that'll just go down as one of those. Um, you know, like the, like the grave of the unknown soldier, that's the story of the unknown creative.
1: That's it, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, um, so it's a challenging industry to get into now. Very, and, very. Um, what do you make of the. Um, uh, a couple of people I've spoken to for this series have said that back in the 80s, uh, advertising was a, uh, trying not to speak like Dominic Cummings and say it was a, a place for misfits and weirdos. Um, but it's a place where you could go and, you know, offer yourself up and get an opportunity. And I've heard some people saying now it's very difficult to get an opportunity if you aren't from, you know, a a type of background, private school, you know, able to work for free, uh, things like that. What, what do you think about those particular kind of barriers, social barriers to the industry?
1: I think there have always been social barriers to the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there were bigger budgets. Um, to play with back in the eighties, and um, more time. So time is another thing that um, has disappeared. Um, we are we have less time to do what we need to do. Um, it is interesting that you know you look at um, so some of the sort of big creatives in the eighties, and a lot of them have gone on to be film directors or writers. You know the likes of Alan Parker. Um, quite a few of them Mm -hmm. Um, so um, who knows maybe in five years time ten years time we'll see you know a lot of the people working that you know I work with they'll become big film Hollywood film directors and writers who knows Um, but um, it was I think there was more time and there was more flexibility and more um, encouragement of talent because there were budgets to play with there was time to play with um, and there was opportunity. And I think that talent is talent. Talent's always existed. It's always been there. Um, but I think now it's so much harder to um, to nurture that talent because, again, it's speed. What we're after is results. You know, results yeah. is what I need, not, not, you know, procrastination and kind of, um, you know, wallowing in thought I just I want an answer I need I need a creative solution to this to this problem and I think again one of the other things that's probably hindering creativity is that you know yourself you know your first idea is never your best one your second your third or fourth none of those ideas are really your best ideas your best ideas come after um, a lot of cogitation some time doing something else and then you come back to it but um, that isn't afforded to creatives anymore that isn't they don't have that time they've got two or three days to come up with whatever they've got to come up with or maybe a week or maybe a fortnight maximum and you know what comes out is what you the best you can hope for in that window in that time window um and so I think that's another reason that creativity um has been affected because we're not giving creatives enough time you don't say to kind of Damien Hurst, you know knock me up a picture and i need it by friday mm-hmm. you know here's the brief you know you, you you don't do that you wouldn't say to a composer you know can you knock me up you know you wouldn't go to you know a writer and say knock me up a, a novel jk rowling say knock me up a novel by you know next tuesday yes yeah, you can do it you know i can write you a piece of music uh you know i can write you a story it's not going to be my best story it's not going to be my best piece of music and as a producer of music you, you must you must feel this that you know the more time you have um not in indefinite amounts of time because you can be um you know uh, you can get past that point of perfection and ruin something mm-hmm. but enough time to be able to really give the um the problem some decent thought and explore you know deep into the um ether of your imagination and pull out the really, really good thoughts that are lurking right at the back. It's like that, yeah. that sort of magic thought that's at the back of the attic. You've got to get through all the other stuff before you find it.
0: Yeah, and, but there will always be the um, more Darwinian type who says, uh, nope, it's uh, you know survival of the fastest. Who haven't come up with the best idea fastest. is just the best for the job, so
1: well, I've never heard of survival of the fastest. I've heard of survival of the fittest. Of course. um, But, you know, I've never heard of survival of the fastest. So I think that um, the speed at which we are made to do things um, is a curse, um, you know, in the 20th century. Yeah. it is the 20th, not the 21st? Because it started a a long time ago and it's been exacerbated by, you know, the internet and technology. Doing things faster doesn't mean that you get things done better. Multitasking isn't a thing. You know, we actually, uh, you can, I can uh, wash the dishes and listen to music and talk to my friend at the same time, but um, I can't do two pieces of work at the same time, two pieces of thinking at the same time. Multitasking is actually impossible. You can only do one, think, process, uh, consciously process one thing at a time. So all you're doing is moving from one thing to another really, really, really fast. And in doing that really, really fast, you're tiring yourself out. Yeah. So um, it's... It's a fallacy. It doesn't
0: yeah. exist. You're probably it losing doesn't... generations of quality between each iteration of the task as well, as if you were, uh, you know, recording the same thing onto a tape over and over again and it kept degrading. Yeah. So it's interesting because, as well, this this ties into the idea that um, uh, the technological developments that we've seen in, uh, over the last hundred years, which have been un- unprecedented, to use a popular word at the moment, uh, I suppose at one point were to... Uh, save time and save labor, and whilst they did those things, what they also did was increase capacity, because yeah. you know now you've got so much more time, and we 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 go and we fill that time with other things to do, um, and so it's interesting to hear. You know, I suppose like a cliche, I thought I would have thought it would only be the creatives themselves who say, "Oh, just you know, don't don't give us any pressure." It's really interesting to hear someone from strategy and planning uh, making that same point.
1: Yeah. And it's actually, um, I I, I don't necessarily agree that we have more time. I think we have less time because um, what, you know, these devices have done is that they've, we used to have time to think and we used to have um, time to be bored and we used to have time that had nothing in it. And that is almost a crime these days to have time with nothing in it. Mm. Um, and I'm still old, and I'm old enough to remember what that was, and I still quite like it. I quite like just having windows of nothingness in my life, <laughs> rare though they are. But um, it's something that young people don't understand. So I've got an 18-year-old daughter, and there isn't a moment um, in her life when she's not doing at least two things,
0: mm-hmm.
1: because it's almost impossible, anathema for younger people to imagine time that is empty, that's just the freedom of of space and your own thoughts. Every moment is filled uh, with with content, and I think that that just becomes like noise pollution for the brain. Yes. Um, And it doesn't help with clarity of thought, and it doesn't help with um, keeping you grounded, and it doesn't help with you really understanding who you are and what you want to be, and what your perspective is on life, and I think that maybe for younger people, it will take them a lot longer to work that out than it did for generations before that um, didn't have that noise pollution um, interfering with their psyche.
0: Yeah, it's really, uh, it's a, it's very uh, noticeable phenomenon. When, for example, if I'm on the, if I'm on the commute, I'm on the tram. Uh, and there's a moment where everything's been boxed off and I've done everything, it's like, okay, what's next? You know, and straight onto the, I need to read some news, I need to listen to something I've not heard. And um, it's uh, you you could find yourself uh, going against the sort of um, su- sustainability uh, attack. You could find yourself saying, maybe driving is the only place you can actually get time to think anymore. Maybe driving's better for human well-being. But I will put this to you. Um, do you think that's, do you think, the phenomenon you've just explained is why we've seen a rise in um, trends for things like meditation, headspace, and things like this, because now we need to escape from constant content.
1: Definitely. And I think that that those, um, those trends have not come from the very youngest generations. It's not your, um, uh, you know, your, um, Zedders that are interested in doing that it's actually older people it's your millennials Mm -hmm. that are doing it because the millennials um have they're not a generation of people that were born into um the kind of um full-on digital world um you know the iPhone world because it hasn't been around that long really though it feels like it's been around forever so um they are in a space where they are there's a friction between uh what they want to get out of life um participation in life and also participation uh the opposite of participation kind of being isolated in your own bubble and increasingly you get sort of thrown into or drawn into the rest of life the FOMO thing you know it's kind of what am I missing out on why can't I digitally detox Mm -hmm. and I've done quite a few studies around sort of um social media in particular and um I did a study a few years ago that asked the question um, if, um, and it was uh, specifically um, targeted to to women, this study, and the question was um, if the government um, or a similar authority, global authority, um, said that unfortunately we had to switch off all social media um, on Sunday and that would be the end of that, um, how many people, what percentage of people said they would be disappointed? I'm posing the question to you.
0: I think how many people would be disappointed?
1: Yeah,
0: women, women. And it's women of all
1: ages. It was 18 to 80.
0: I think you would be, I'm guessing, below 30%.
1: Yeah, 23% of women said that they would be disappointed. And there was a massive spike in the under 25s. So of that 23%, a huge volume came from the under 25s because, you know, it's um, it's the connectivity. It's, yeah. I can't do it on my own. I can only do it if everyone else does it.
0: And having been born, brought up with it as well.
1: Yeah. So um, so it's, it's a very difficult um, situation to navigate because you've got to have the strength of character to say, I'm now checking out. For a week or for two weeks um so ho- um, holidays in the uk and um, uk-based staycation type holidays have been um, on the increase for the last couple of years since about 2016 17 and that's been driven by um young millennial people who um one of the reasons that they want to do that is because it's just the idea of being able to kind of get a countryside retreat somewhere and actually just disconnect initially detox from um you know, the, the the surroundings, their kind of everyday surroundings. And it's it's different camping, so it's a big one. And it's kind of different to uh, going to Miami and having to take glamorous pictures of yourself on the, uh, you know, in all these amazing locations or a long weekend in New York, or it's all Insta, 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 Insta. Mm. You're just in our field having fun, really. And uh, it, it's that kind of um, grassroots, simple enjoyment that I think we've lost touch with. And what the lockdown has has really helped us to do is to help us reconnect with the simplicity of what basic pleasure really is. So just enjoying a, a glass of wine with a loved one or, you know, going for a walk um, or, um, you know, going for a little cycle ride or, you know, appointment viewing television, you know, all these little luxuries, reading a book, all these little luxuries that... Um, you know, are luxuries, but we take them all so much for granted.
0: Yeah. Hey, well, we started with lockdown and how about we uh, end on that with lockdown? (laughs) Let's lock it down. Yeah, very good. Well, I look forward to doing this again.